0: Okay, hey, Sean, before you, uh, maybe you or somebody else, can you give me like two chairs? I'm going to need to borrow two of those chairs. You know how Leif has a message that he uses like three chairs? And yeah. yeah, I told Leif, I'm like, I'll see your three chairs and I'll lower you one. Yeah. So I'm going to do a two-chair chat tonight. Uh, yeah, just right here will be fine. Yeah, this is great. Uh, I operate with a real, can I come down here? Am I going to feedback if I do? Uh, we'll see if I do. I operate with a real simple but eternally, I think, profound thought going through my head that uh, sounds like this You were one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and He did that. That's my salvation, by the way. You're one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and He did that. I was on a cruise with a friend. Uh, we were walking by a ballroom and they had, uh, it was a wonderful group of Southern Baptist folks who had rented a, uh, a ballroom for their you know, church crews or whatever. And they had a, their, their worship was an Elvis impersonator. It was fascinating. Singing hymns. I mean, full on spandex, you know, thing. It was great. And outside of the ballroom, they had, um, they had people passing out tracts on the cruise, this is what you get when you go on Carnival cruise, by the way. Anyway, so <clears throat> so as uh, we're passing by the ballroom, uh, they stop us. Excuse, excuse me. We have a couple of minutes of your time. Well, sure, we'd be happy to, you know, share. And then um, they proceed to share the gospel with us. It was wonderful. I haven't been witnessed to in so long. Uh, you know, just you just you forget what it's like to be on the other end of that for a change. It was so wonderful. And uh, uh, one of the guys says says to my friend standing next to me, says, if, uh, if you got to the gates of heaven and God asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And my friend says, in that day you will know I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Now, what he was doing was quoting John fourteen twenty which I think is the most mind-melting verse in the whole Bible, actually. There's a lot of really good ones, but that one gets me every time. In that day, you will know I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. And this wonderful missionary on the cruise says to my friend, Wow, sir, that sounds pretty good, but I got to tell you, your new age ideas aren't going to be enough to get you into heaven. I'm like wide-eyed. And I said, That's not new age. I mean it's eternal age. That's that's uh that's Jesus in John fourteen. And the guy says, No, I've read the Bible. I'm pretty sure I never heard that before. So we literally had to open up this King James Version and and read John fourteen twenty. And so we started many years ago, a conversation among our just our community in, in Texas and in Florida and various places on this glory of our reconciled union with Christ, that it seems like that idea has become a it, it, center to the faith, but it's actually so hard to wrap your mind around, it's hard to grasp. Matter of fact, we started an online community called Reformation 1420, hence the new Reformation 1420 swag with John 1420 on the back. So, um, anyhow, we started this group called Reformation 1420. It's not like a church or anything, online church, but uh, it's an online community of people that are just keeping this conversation alive. It started out as a real small consortium of a few dozen people, and now it's grown to hundreds and hundreds of people. And, uh, and every day, uh, there's a member of our, I would say, our, our ministry team, our leadership team that puts a video or two out, just sharing a couple of thoughts about what it's like to live in this reconciled union with Christ. One day I had somebody come up to me and said, uh, after hearing a little bit about this idea that you're, you're united with God, that you're one with him, that he lives in you, and it doesn't mean that you're God, okay? That's not what I'm saying, but you know, you're know, you more than you think, right? You're more than what you think you are. And so he uh, came up to me afterwards and said, I really don't believe what you're talking about. And I said, well, what do you mean? Said, this thing about union with Christ... I say, you don't don't believe that, even if you read it in the scriptures. I believe the Bible, but I don't believe that. I just, I can't believe that. And I said, you know what, I understand. It's a big concept, but let me ask you a question. If you did believe that you were one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, what about your life would change? And the response was just well thought out, digging deep, searching through their life, finally looked me in the eye and said everything everything if union with christ threatens your identity let go of your identity and lay hold of his it's changed my whole life it's changed how i see the bible when i read the bible i read it from a posture of union I think you guys have been doing a study on reading the Bible supernaturally. Reading the Bible supernaturally is, is to read it from a posture of union. It's reading with the author actually living inside of you. It's reading where you, you begin to look in, if, for example, if you're looking at the parables of Jesus, when you read the parables of Jesus, look for Jesus in the parable and then you'll find you. I, I could go into hours of explanation on that. We go through all the parables, but I'll just give you one simple example. The parable of the seed and the sower. You guys remember that? sower goes forth to sow, and he sows seed, and it falls on different kinds of soil, rocky soil, thorny soil, good soil, etc. Some of was on the wayside. <clears throat> and you go look at it and go, wow, which one of the dirts am I? For whatever reason, we default to believing that In this play, we have one of four characters we can be, and that is the soil, which is true on one level. But the problem with that is now it puts everything on you. Am I good soil? Am I good enough? Did I receive enough seed? Did I give the right seed? Did did I tend to it enough? And pretty soon, you start to feel this like angst because you're the one that's actually having to work this thing out. But in the new covenant, you're one with God and Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. No distance or separation between you and him. It's he who defines you. And now you go back to the parables of Jesus, which are all prior to the cross, by the way, and you take that revelation of union with you, and you get a whole new revelation. Because there's both old and new covenant revelation in the parables, because Jesus is just that smart. He can actually do that. He can preach both sides of the cross from one spot. And so while he's standing on the front side of the cross, he's wanting them to come to the end of their own effort, the end of their own ability to do anything to affect their own salvation. But once we get onto this side of the cross, then an amazing thing happens. We go back and look at the parable and realize, wait a minute, where's Jesus? He's the sower. I'm in him and he's in me. And now you realize, I'm not the dirt anymore, I am in the sower, Now it impacts my identity. See, now he is now impacting my identity. I'm not trying to figure out whether I'm good soil, bad soil, thorny soil, rocky soil. Did I get the right seed? Did I get enough? No. I am actually the sower now, and I have an unlimited supply of seed. And you know the funny thing about the sower in the story? He's like the worst farmer ever. He doesn't just strategically plant seed, look for good soil. No, he just, he just like is flinging it all over the place as if he's got an unlimited supply. And then you start to get a revelation of your identity and what you have access to in terms of heaven's revelation. The grace of God. I've got an unlimited supply and the fields are all ripe. Even the thorny ground, even the sidewalk. I'm just going to throw seed everywhere. He's like a kid. Childlikeness. In the kingdom of God, maturity is childlikeness. So, I'm going to do a simple... And short teaching tonight, and then we're going to open this up for Q and A, and then maybe we'll do some activation. All right. <clears throat> Somebody say, "I want to, I want to understand this thing about union." So, that's what I came up with to help us understand a little bit about union. We're going to use these two chairs. So every time you sit down in these two chairs, you'd be like, "Whoa, I'm one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit," and He did that. All right. In the beginning, God starts out with God in the beginning. It all begins with him. God creates a beginning, and in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. The way he does it is by, and if you've never heard me teach, I'm only doing this for the few people that have never heard me teach anything, but this is super important. It's foundational to identity and understanding who you are. The very first thing that God does is he actually creates environments, and he speaks to the substance of the environment that he has created to produce life. So he creates a water, and then he talks to it. Fish come forth. He creates the earth. He speaks to it. says, let the earth bring forth. Everything that's meant to live in that environment comes forth. He makes man in his image and his likeness. And he says in Genesis 1.26, let us create man in our image and after our likeness. The us he's talking to is not an angel, because you're not made in the image and likeness of an angel. I know I'm going fast, but your spirit can listen faster than your head, Right? he says, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are having an internal dialogue. And he says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So to make fish, he talks to water. To make plants and animals, he talks to the earth. To make man, he spoke to himself. Himself. He spoke to the environment of himself. Himself. To make you. In him we live and move and have our being. And so man was born in a face-to-face encounter with God. God lifts the mud of the earth up to his mouth breathes into man's nostrils, he forms man out of the mud of the earth and does something. He never does this with any other creation ever, anywhere, at any point in time in history. He speaks and molds and forms things into existence, but he never does this. Yahweh. It's the breath of God. Yahweh. And the mud of earth collide with the breath of the very spirit of God. and Man becomes a divine convergence zone between heaven and earth, a gateway, in a sense, between the seen and the unseen world. That's who you are. Mm-hmm. Man opens his eyes to have his very first conscious experience he ever has, and that is to behold the face of a father who adores him. What's your name? Yeah. No, no, no right, right, right here in the front, Jordan. Thanks, Lisa. I appreciate that. But we're going to borrow Jordan. Jordan, hop up here for a second. Go ahead and bring your beverage with you. Totally fine. All right. I'm going to get to play God. I don't get to do that very often except with my kids, and that doesn't even work very well. Okay. Go ahead and have a seat. This is the way it works. All right? Close your eyes for just a second. God takes and forms man in his image and after his likeness. And then he breathes into him, Yahweh. And Adam, go ahead opens his eyes, and this is the first thing he sees. is the loving face of a father who was enamored with him before he had the chance to do anything to impress him or disappoint him. That's where you belong. This is where you started. This is where you find your life, in the presence of God. Stretch your hands toward Jordan. I pray, Lord, right now that all the days of Jordan's life, that he would absolutely know whose image and likeness he's made in. And, Father, that there would never be a day in his life from here to eternity where he would ever know any distance or separation between you and him. Thank you, Jesus. Awesome. Have a seat down there. So God and man have... This incredible face-to-face encounter relationship, it's beautiful. And then one day, man decides he wants to do his own thing, because God has this high value for something called freedom, and freedom requires choice. God didn't show up here and create you and then come to earth and die on a cross to make you religious. He came to make you free, right? Not freedom from bondage into sin, but freedom so that you could actually be free. To show you authentic, true freedom. You can tell when a person has met Jesus, the authentic Jesus, because the result is that they're free. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said, I am the truth. The truth is a person, and his Christ sets you free. And so some people have come into an awareness, an idea of Christ or concept of Jesus, but when you actually meet Jesus, the result is that you are free. All right? So man decides, and he's given the freedom to do this, he decides he wants to turn away from God. He wants to do his own thing. And the way he does it is by a a serpent, The, the deceiver comes up to Adam one day, Adam and Eve, and says to them, you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can be like God. And the interesting thing about that is that Eve was already made in the image and likeness of God. Adam and Eve were already there. They already had that. But he very cleverly suggested they didn't have that and then told them, this is what you do to get that. So what the serpent or the deceiver or the devil did is that he actually tried to convince them that they didn't have what they did have and then gave them a work to do to try to obtain what they already had. People are still doing it today. There's still people in church that are trying to obtain through works what they already possess by grace. The problem is, if you lose sight of what you already have access to, you can never work enough to get it because you don't even know what it is. And that's what puts you on the hamster wheel of religious effort. That's why people get their lives tanked left and right because they try and work and do it and it doesn't seem to. It's a gift, pure and simple. And so, people say the original sin was that Adam wanted to be like God, man wanted to be like God. No, it's not. The original sin is that we believed the lie of the enemy that said we weren't. And then we tried to work to obtain what we already had. Man turns his back on God. And we think, well, you know, what does God do? Does God turn his back on man and says, That's it, I'm done with you. No, that's not exactly what God does. God actually does this. He gets in man's face and confronts him with something called a covenant. Man's like, Whoa, what, what are you doing? Uh, I kind of want to be in covenant with you. I'll give you an example of just one of them Exodus chapter 19. God says to the children of Israel, He says, Hey, Look and see what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you up. I liberated you people by bearing you up on eagles' wings to bring you as a kingdom of priests unto myself for all the earth is mine. It's a massive declaration, and God is looking at these slave-minded people and saying, here's how I see you. Kings, that's royalty. Priests, you have spiritual authority and instant access to me at all times. It actually all belongs to me, but what I want to do is start a royal line of people who have direct access to me. They can come into my presence any time you have free access to me. We're going to be in a reconciled, beautiful relationship. Are you in? And they were like, nah, you're, you're scaring us. We don't ever want to hear you talk to us again. That's Revelation chapter 20, and verse 19. And when they say that to God, God actually goes silent for 1,300 years. Fascinating. doesn't corporately speak again until Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism. So over and over again, down through the ages, it seems like man turns his back on God. And God, instead, comes back at man, and he does this thing of covenant all over again. He just keeps getting in our face with covenant Till finally one day it's like God goes, all right, that's it. Every covenant I make with these people, they break. So we're going to do a different kind of a covenant. It's called the new covenant, by the way, and the new covenant is totally different than any of the old covenants before. The new covenant is not made between God and man. Isaiah 42.6, God says, I will give you, speaking of the Messiah, I will give you as a covenant for the people. And so what you have here is God is making a new covenant, and it's not made between God and man, it's made between God the Father and God the Son. And you are in Christ. Here's the great thing about the new covenant, you didn't make it, so you can't break it. Nothing you do can threaten or break the new covenant. The new covenant is eternal. It's always going to be. It's better than the old. It's a major upgrade from what's ever been before. God steps into our story. So here's how this works. God shows up, and this is an amazing thing. Remember how we were made in the image and likeness of God? Now God steps into the story of humanity, and crazy. He steps into our image he looks so much like us, we can't tell him from anybody else. This is awesome. Jesus now, he he, he starts going around and he starts seeing people and he goes, whoa, fishermen, they'll make great ministers. Drop everything and come follow me. And they're like, yeah, whatever. This isn't working for us. Drop the nets, let the boats go. They follow Jesus. Tax collector, Everybody hates you, Matthew. Why don't you come and you know join the team? Dude, seriously, that sounds great. You need a treasurer? No, I got I got a guy. His name's Judas. I think he's gonna work out just fine. We we need like some spice on this ministry team. I need a terrorist, Simon you're a zealot, why don't you come and join the ministry team? Zealots, by the way, they were like people who overthrew the government by violent means. I mean, these were like assassins, covert nighttime assassins who would like, if they had weapons, they would use them to overthrow governments. That's zealots. And Jesus is like, Simon, we need a zealot on the team. And I can hear the rest of the disciples like, no, no, we don't. No, we're fine. Seriously. Are you kidding me? You know what this guy does? I mean, I probably all slept with like one eye open. I'm like, dude, I'm not, that's, Simon guy's freaking me out. It, it's, it should give every pastor on earth tremendous hope, because not even Jesus could pick a good leadership team, right? <laughs> By the time you get three years of ministry under their belt, they've seen every miracle than you can begin to imagine the self-proclaimed leader of the group denies even knowing the guy who started the whole ministry, and the treasurer has ripped the groove off and under uh, just a cloud of guilt goes out and hangs himself in a tree. So we've got a suicide, and the leader deserts, and the rest of the group is just kind of huddled together and, and, and in fear. Super successful ministry Jesus has, right? So anyway. changes the whole world, but, you know, still. By our standards, not super successful. Here's the thing. Jesus, he shows up, and he's doing amazing things, and he's healing blind eyes, and he's he's doing it weird ways. Spits into the dirt, creates mud, slaps it on a blind guy's face, and tells him, go wash in the pool across town. So a blind guy has to stumble across the city with the saliva of God dripping off of his face to find the right pool to wash in to get healed. That seems a little unchristian. Or how about blind Bartimaeus, which is a fascinating story. Jesus is walking by, and they're like, hey, the healers are, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus turns around, and here's the guy and says, tell the blind guy to come here. No, 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 Jesus, you don't understand how this works. Ministry 101, he can't see. you got to go to the, no, tell the blind guy to come here. His methodologies are just out there. At one point in time, he goes up to a guy who can't speak, and he spits on his own fingertips and touches the guy's tongue. There's like no social distancing with this guy. There's like no hygiene. This, this is not a kind of ministry you want to emulate. Nobody's around there going, ah, no. I don't see that in healing lines where people are like, stick your tongue out. People don't do that. He's doing stuff nobody's going to turn into a formula. I like he's knows exactly what he's doing, and here's a crazy thing let me just this is just kind of an extra point let's say that Jim and I were part of the 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 twelve right and and we're we have no idea what's going on I've never met Jim before he's never met me, and here we are we're part of you know this is like ten other guys in this group, and we've all dropped everything to follow Jesus because we all kind of hated our jobs anyway, and we really don't know what's going on but this rabbi has said, follow me, and he's given us an open door to do something that seems like it's going to be really significant, and now we just saw him heal somebody. We just saw him raise somebody from the dead. And one day I turned to Jim, and I said, you notice this guy's like got superpowers, right? And, and it's nice that he's affecting these individual people, and I'm sure their families appreciate it, and it's spectacular for people watching, but wonder if he can affect like, like serious change. Like, I wonder if he can do something super big like, we have a huge problem, Jim. We have a religious system, the Jewish system, that's like religiously oppressive. We've got so many laws, we can't keep up with it. Not only that, but we have a political system that's absolutely killing us. They're like tormenting and torturing our people. So we've got a political system that's corrupt. We've got a religious system that's corrupt. And he's going around and doing all these wonderful, you know, uh, wonderful healings and stuff. But I wonder if he can affect that. And Jim goes, you know, it's crazy because I, I hear him talking, and he keeps mentioning this thing of the kingdom of God. Yeah, yeah, he is. He's talking a lot about the kingdom. Let's pay attention to that. Now, the more we think about it, the more we listen to it, the more we realize he is fully intending that this kingdom is going to be real, and, and of course, he's going to be the king, and if any king has you know subjects or a cabinet or, or you know uh, uh, employees or whatever, he's going to have people at various levels of authority and power, and in a kingdom, he's got a right and he's got a left, and there's only one right and only one left. So we might ask ourselves, I wonder who's the greatest? And of course, Jim and I would agree that it was us. We just would. And we would think to ourselves, we have this expectation. wonder how he's going to do it. Like one day, he's just going to stop ministering to these individual people, and suddenly he's just going to do something amazing, and all the Romans are just going to be gone And the Jewish leaders, they're just going to be done away with. He's going to have to get rid of them in order to actually set up his kingdom. So we might plan out with expectations what that might look like. We might build colossal dreams about what it would look like to minister in a kingdom where supernatural power is flowing. And then then our leader gets murdered. How many of you know our expectations? We can Completely shattered. All of our expectations would be gone. And this is what Jesus does He allows them to dream and build expectations. But I want you to just think about that. I love dreaming with God and I love dreaming big dreams. But sometimes our dreams can actually be a roadblock to our destiny. If the expectations we build, even if they seem godly, do not line up with heaven's agenda, sometimes our dreams can actually be a roadblock to our destiny. And God has to, in Christ, wipe the expectations off of these people. I mean, the expectations are now gone. And when he shows up, when he appears to them after the resurrection, these guys are stripped completely bare, and they have one tool left that will carry them through the rest of their life, and it's the same tool you and I have. And it's a surrendered yes to his voice. That's it. All their dreams and all their expectations are gone now they live with a complete blank slate to just surrender to say yes to his voice. Can I tell you one thing I think? I think God is doing something in our day and that is he is destroying the idol of our certainty. God has blown up the idol of our certainty. I'm not saying God did this COVID thing to us. It's not what God does, but He's not wasteful either, and He's not going to let this thing go by without a glory coming out of it somewhere. But when our certainty, which in Western thinking I think our certainty is, I get the I get the perfect spouse, and I have a great job, and I can see into the future, and I got my 401k, and I've got all my stuff set up, and everything's hey, my certainty is my safety and my security. And listen, that stuff's wonderful. It's great. It's good. But I think sometimes the safety and security that we think we need that we build up, if God showed up to us and said, let it all go because I have something I need you to do for me, if that safety and security or that certainty causes us to close our ears to be able to say yes to his voice, he doesn't mind letting the idol of our certainty crumble to the ground. accumulate, amass whatever it is that you want, and see it into the future as far as you feel like you need to. But if God can't come to you and say, drop it all and follow me, then you've replaced your destiny with an idol of your own expectation. And now when God in Christ finally, when he resurrects from the dead and he appears to the disciples, he appears to to a group of guys who have a completely blank slate and they are now willing to give their lives. To just simply say yes, one yes to the next. This is the difference between being a believer and a disciple. Jesus never told us, go out and make converts or believers. He didn't tell us, go have somebody pray a prayer with you. Which prayer, by the way? Where do you find that? He didn't tell you. He didn't tell us go make up a prayer. So if you get these people to pray just the right prayer, that you get a notch on their Bible, and that's it. That's not the way this thing works. I love having people pray with me, but understand that prayer is not in the Bible. Jesus, Jesus says, make disciples. Do you understand that disciple making takes time? Because you can become, and this is what we think. Person is we, we just we just feel like like the highest echelon of of a person's uh, uh, entrance into the kingdom of God is just getting to say yes to Jesus. Boom, they become a believer. That's great. You can become a believer in a second by faith. I don't care how much faith you have, you will not become a disciple in a second. You cannot become a disciple in a second by faith. A believer is somebody who says yes to Jesus. A disciple is somebody who says yes and keeps on saying yes says yes tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And and how about this? Disciple is somebody who says yes even when your yes is about to cost you. Only when your yes is about to cost you and you say yes anyway do you know that you're a disciple. Jesus shows up, starts healing the sick, doing amazing things, Raising the dead, do we love him for it? We cheer him, but no, we don't really love him. As a matter of fact, he's, he's disrupting our society, and so we kill him. That's what we do to our own creator. It's amazing how we do that. But he doesn't go into the ground alone. See, in bringing death to our own creator, 2 Corinthians 5 says, one died for all, therefore all died you went into the ground with him. The old you, gone, done away, went into the ground with Christ, but he didn't stay dead. He actually raised, and he brought you out of the grave with him, a new creation, brought you to newness of life, restored. We say, well, well, back to this, right? And this is where a lot of times we hit a crossroads. People go, wait, wait, wait. This is where we are, right? And then they start saying, okay, I don't want to necessarily... I, I, I'm afraid. What, am I, what happens if I turn my back on Jesus anymore? And, and, and it's almost like we've gone back to the garden again. We're in this face-to-face communion. It's, hopefully we stay there, and I want to stay there, and I want to make... And then we, we, think, we think of God like this. It's like, it's like you know, you just it, it, my least favorite Christmas song in the whole world. It, this song terrified me when I was a kid. You better watch out. You better not cry, because cause you, you know... He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. My parents used to like, you you know, you you hear that? You take the music out of it. It's a super creepy tune. Super freaky song. Sees you when you're sleeping. My parents would be like, sing that song to me. I'm thinking, this strange old man is watching me while I sleep. Now you want me to go to the mall and sit on his lap? That's a hard no. not doing that. So some people get into that mode with Jesus. It's like, oh, man. But then some people get into the mode of, okay, 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 okay. So, so if, if I turn towards him, he'll turn towards me. But if I turn my back on him, then he'll turn his back on me. And they get into this, this he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not kind of relationship with Christ. This is a fundamental misunderstanding in what the new covenant actually did. See, the new covenant killed you. You got brought into Christ, killed you and made you alive again, but you're not your own anymore. You're bought with a price. And here's the way this works. First Corinthians chapter one and verse 30, write that reference down, study it, live it, learn it. It is, it is going to be fruit, life, food, meat, protein for your body, for your soul, for your spirit. Says this by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By his doing, how'd you get in Christ? By his doing, and then it says, Four things he actually became for us wisdom, sanctification, redemption, so on and so forth. And each one of those are things that we try to be for ourselves. So the new covenant isn't you even being restored to face to face communion with God. That's where we began, but how many of you know the level of intimacy gets better and better and better and grows and grows and grows? You start out with Christ, and you start out as a slave or a servant. In other words, I'm just serving God. I'm just going to give my life and serve, serve, serve. That's typically because we're we're doing penance for all the guilt from all the time we feel like we wasted. And then one day God comes to us and says, I no longer call you servants. I call you what? Friends. So I call you friends. Now he brings us from servanthood to friendship. That's better because now we know the master's heart or why he's doing what he's doing. But then you get to like Romans, uh, Romans eight, that says we have not received the spirit of bondage again of fear. We have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry out, "Abba, Father." Whoa, I'm not a friend anymore. I'm a child of God. But then you begin to realize, wait, I'm in a new covenant union with Christ. I'm the bride of Christ, which means I'm even like the intimacy level is growing exponentially. And then pretty soon you realize I'm not just the bride of Christ. I am the body of Christ. See, this is new covenant. It's not even face-to-face because that's just separation. This is where you are, where you live, where you belong eternally in him. This is new covenant reality. You have it better than Adam ever even thought about having it. He was walking around in a garden with God. Now Jesus has brought himself and the garden into you. The garden had four rivers flowed out, covered the whole earth. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away. All things become new. The Holy Spirit in you now flows out like what? Rivers of living water. Where's the garden? It's right there. Where's Christ? He's in you, and you are in him. That's the thing of union that makes this so amazing. It's the revelation that there's no distance or separation between you and God. Now, You think to yourself, now, if I truly believed this, wow, what would change about my life? Everything. 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 All right. So, having gone through all of this tonight, I I hope I've stirred some questions, and I would love to have a dialogue and answer some. So, since this is a school class, we're going to do some interaction here. So, anybody got any questions from the outside? Do we have another microphone where we can record some of these? <clears throat> so, if this stirred any questions in you, uh, I would love to hear them. I can't. Im- oh, one. Yay! Good.
1: Okay. Uh, my name is Renee. Hi, Renee. Um, I, I hope you don't mind that this isn't really a question, but it's a statement. Sure. And this kind of gave me chills. Um, my father, who's a real devout man of God, he was in his prayer closet one day, and he was praying. He could not feel God, could not feel his presence. He just felt like he just couldn't get deep, you know, when you're like, ah. So he was praying, and uh, he had a window open in the room, and he just walked over. He was closing the window. He was going to just wrap it up and just, you know, I'm done, <laughs> He, whenever it closed the window, he turned around, the presence of God, the spirit of God just hit him. He started praying in the Holy Ghost. But as he prayed in the Holy Ghost, he heard the Lord say this, son, every time you pray, we are eye to eye and face to face. And that's all I could think of when you were sitting up there. That's it. That's it. Every time we pray, we are eye to eye and face to face.
0: Yeah, it's not... It's not that we lose the face-to-face communication or communion with God. It's that it doesn't stop there. The intimacy has increased. But, you know, here's the thing. The, The goodness of God always increases with every generation. The revelation of it. He's always been good. But every generation gets a revelation that seems to be better than the previous generation got. Like David lived in a time where he thought nobody can see God and live to tell about it. But one day God came to David and said, seek my face. Psalm 103, he reveals this. David says, when you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face I will seek. It's a fascinating thing that David reveals there, because the the thought was no man can see God and live. And so David's operating under this, this assumption, theological, biblical theological assumption. And one day, God confronts David's biblical understanding by giving him an alternative command that, increases the revelation of his goodness. And God comes to David and goes, seek my face. And I imagine God went, or David says, "Uh, yeah, yeah, that's funny. Super funny that you would invite me to do something that's actually impossible. Seek my face. Yeah, but clearly you haven't seen in the Bible where it says we can't actually see you and live. Seek my face. Finally, David has to go, okay, it may kill me, but what a way to go. Yeah. Yeah. If you say go for it, all right. And that's the way he does. Yeah, so it's not that we ever lose that face-to-face communion with God, but it just increases. If face-to-face communion with God ever gives us a perspective of distance and separation, then we need to rethink what even that means. Within Revelation, even in heaven... Uh, people say, you know, we get a vision of the throne room, you know, and, and I think we did this exercise last time I taught here in the school, um, which I don't know how many of you are here for that, but, but I had everybody kind of close their eyes, picture the throne room of God, and then, and then ask them the question, where are you in the throne room? Like if you were to put yourself in the throne room, see God, see the, see the throne room as much as we know about it from the book of Revelation, um, see, see that and, and in, in all of its glory and splendor, go on and describe it and then say, where are you? And some people responded with, you know, I'm on my face. You know, or I'm dancing in worship or I'm looking around for somebody I know. I mean, um, I, I'm on my knees, hands raised, face down on my back, whatever. One person says, I'm outside and I know there's something going on in the room there, but I don't even feel worthy to go in. But in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21 says this, To him who overcomes, I will grant you to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. So even in heaven, no distance, no separation, that's actually your posture eternally, is to be united with him. I was in uh, Rochester, Minnesota. I was doing a Global Legacy Conference in in, uh, Rochester, and there was a beautiful, wonderful Assembly of God uh, man and his staff just just sitting all over the front row. And um, I, I was an AG pastor for 12 years, like Jim, we came from that background, and uh, and I'm doing this whole exercise about you know just see see yourself on the throne with him in heaven, and this guy falls down face down on the ground and he is weeping like having this ridiculous encounter with God. I mean it's like it's it's loud, and finally when he you know gets done snotting all over the carpet and stuff, and I, I finally said you know afterwards what happened, and he goes. I have an open vision. He said, literally, the room went away, and I found myself sitting on a throne, and I knew God was there, and I knew I was there, and I was in him, and he was in me. And he said, my whole life, he said, said, I can see in front of me an endless sea of humanity, as far as I can see. And he goes, my whole life, I have been terrified of this theological reality called the great white throne of judgment until I realized when I looked down, he said, and I gripped the arms of the seat that I'm sitting on, it's white. And I realized the one sitting on the white throne of judgment is me. And he goes, God just broke my heart for the nations, for people, for different groups, for people who think differently. He said, I'm seeing all of humanity in front of me. And he said, God just filled me with compassion. He said, I just, I'm, I'm undone. He said, I found myself just, when I finally came to, he says, I didn't realize I had even fallen face first on the floor. He said, i was just completely undone. And he goes, just, I realized no distance, no separation. And, and some people will say that, well, you know, that's to, the, to him who overcomes. That means that's to the special people like Jim and Mary, the overcomers, right? But, you know, Revelation goes on to tell us that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. The blood of the lamb is what Christ has done. The word of our testimony is us talking about what Christ has done. So we are overcomers by default because of what Christ has done. That's what qualifies you to be on the throne. So you can't even, you know, be proud about that. None of this stuff, by the way, it's like you can't be proud about being in Christ, sitting on the throne, being united with him because you didn't do any of it. (laughs) It's a pure gift of grace. I'll tell you one story and then maybe take a couple more questions. Um, so I, I one of the problems with writing a book on grace is you're sort of stuck living it. So, yeah, it's been so much easier to write a book on judgment and wrath, you know, especially this year. Anyhow, so I write this book on grace, and it's like then 2020 happens, like, oh, man, I would love to weigh in on that online argument. Oh, that's a dumpster fire. I just want to pour some gas on that. Can't do it. Anyhow. So, um, so you would think writing a book on grace, you'd be maybe maybe an expert in in grace. Well, you know, don't ever think you're an expert in anything really. Just keep studying, and the more you study, you realize you know less than you thought you did, and you just stay an eternal student. That's a safe posture. So, um, when the COVID thing happened, uh, the church laid off a bunch of staff, and there were two pastors. I was a uh, pastor at a Presbyterian church. <laughs> Presbyterian, not great. I was a pastor at a Presbyterian church in Celebration, Florida, the town that Disney built, and so uh, it's a weird town, it's a very strange town that looks like a movie set. It's it's bizarre, but we love it there. It's kind of fun, and um, and so the the church, of course, everything closes. They laid off a bunch of staff, and um, uh, so. I'm totally fine with that. That doesn't bother me because, you know, I spent three years pastoring a church, that an assignment that I, I really you know wasn't jumping up and down about from day one. But I felt like we got to do some wonderful things and God moved and it was great. And we left with like no animosity in our heart. We, you know, it was like it was a good parting. It wasn't a bad thing at all. And so uh, but still, you know, now uh, all, of, all of our meetings ha- have to be postponed or canceled for the next at least couple of months. And now the church thing is gone, and I'm like, wow, this is crazy. We've gone from, you know, like a decent income to nothing, like overnight. It's fascinating. So uh, uh, later on, the same week, that happened on April 1st, April April Fool's Day. Not a great day to lay people off, by the way. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) because you don't know if it's real or not. It's like, you're like, wait a minute. Oh, come on, you're kidding, right? Oh, you're not. Oh, okay. Blessings. So, so, uh, so that happened like what a Monday or Tuesday that was, and then, um, and then Friday, Friday, I get a call from a guy in the church that he and I haven't said a hundred words over three years. It wasn't one that we knew each other real, real well, um, but uh, incredibly wonderful retired architect, and and uh, he calls us up and says, Hey, listen, I. I got a house I want you to move into. Now Tracy and I like to go walking around this street in our town called Arbor Circle, which is a beautiful, beautiful street. It's got massive mansions on the street, and it's kind of fun to walk around. So this guy lives on Arbor. And we go over to his house, and we're just like, my goodness, this is great. And he goes, uh, there's one house on Arbor Circle. It's like all white with pillars and the whole bit, and upstairs porch, downstairs porch, palm trees everywhere, and we just kind of look at this house and be like, wow, wouldn't that be great? Tracy says, I would love to live in something like that Something, and I'm like, are you kidding me? We're a ministry. People will judge you for living, you know, things like that. She's like, haven't you heard any of Jim Baker's teachings? I'm like, <laughs> anyway, so, <laughs> so, so uh, I, I, uh, no, we just walk by, and we'd be like, wow, that's great. And, um, and we knew it was empty, but we didn't know who owned it. We go to our friend's house, and he goes, um, listen, we want you to move into our home. We built a, a house here in Celebration. It's on Arbor. Uh, 20 years ago, we raised our kids there, and we just can't bring ourselves to sell it just yet. And he goes, you know, uh, we'd just love to have you live there. You can stay there till the end of the year. Uh, and I, I went, well, which one is it? And he goes, it's the, the, the white one with the pillars. And Tracy's, like, eyes are welling up with tears, like, God is so good, right? Okay, so the guy that wrote the book on grace goes, yeah, well, how much you want for that? And he goes, oh, you don't understand nothing. And I go, what? Uh, well, I mean, of course, I'll, I'll take care. We would take care of all the utilities and the yard care and all that stuff. And he goes, he looks at me and goes, w- Why? And I go, I've got to pay for something. And then he says something to me that just rocked me. He goes, for three years, I've heard you preach on grace. And one of the things you say is the minute you try to pay for something that's meant to be a gift, it's no longer a gift anymore. I'm trying to give you a gift here. So I'm getting schooled, right? Right? So we agree to it, and he hands me a key, and we go back to our our place, which is a few blocks away, and we walk in, and I put the key away, and for two days, I act like I don't have it, and finally, Tracy says to me, are we going to move into the new house, like now, and I said, well, listen, I, I just want to give our friend, like, time, because that was a huge thing he did, and, and maybe, maybe he'll, like, let's give him a chance to kind of walk it back and go, you know what? We thought about it. <laughs> what a crazy thing we almost did there, and I would totally give him grace for that. Like, seriously, like, no, no problem. Like, if he, if he said, I can't believe we almost gave you a house to live in for free. That's crazy. You know, here, give me the key back. I'd be like, no problem. I get it. I could get that. Or, or maybe, as I, I'm saying all this stuff to Tracy. I said, or maybe maybe, maybe we misunderstood. Like, I kind of got to get, get some clarity on this. I need to ask for confirmation. I don't know, whatever. So, got, I got to get some clarity on this. Let me. She says, look, you heard him right, and he hasn't called you to tell you he's taken back the offer. Why don't you just pack up some books and go over there? And so, I finally, I listened to her, and so... I packed up some books, and I go over to the house, and I open the door with the key, and I walk in, and I go into the library, and I start putting books on the shelves, and my friend, who's doing some touch-up painting, comes around the corner and sees that I'm in there, and this is what he says, I wonder what was taking you so long. And I felt, I heard, experienced an encounter with God that felt like a chuckle. As if God said, you get it now? I give my grace away freely, recklessly, relentlessly, without condition. I just give it away. And people immediately want to know what they have to pay for it. What do I do? What do I, I'm like, it's, it's a gift. Just take it. It's a gift. The key is in their hand. They finally receive it. But instead of stepping into it, they actually walk back to their old life and act as if they don't even have it. Why? Because they don't think I'm that good, or they think I'm going to change my mind, or they misunderstood what I said. And he said, and if people will just step in the direction of the freedom and the grace that I've given them freely to take possession of what belongs to them and what they have access to, the word that they'll hear me say is, I was wondering what was taking you so long. And suddenly I realized I didn't know anything about grace. By his doing, we're in Christ. You'll read the Bible differently after tonight. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, somebody else? Anybody else got a question? Good question, by the way. I know it wasn't a question, but I made it one. (laughs) I love it. Sean is like, yes, you will ask a question. (laughs) Make one up right now. (laughs) (laughs) So when you said you are one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he did that, I wrote it down, and I'm, I mean, I'm listening to you, and I'm saying, I believe that, but how do I really believe it? Like, like, I, I mean... Like, I mean, we read the Bible and we say, I believe that, but yeah, and so my question is so... (laughs) Like everything we do with Jesus, it's a simple yes when we have no idea what we're saying yes to. I've never understood anything I've ever said yes to when it comes to what Christ has invited me into. He invites me into a process. It, 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 Hebrews eleven says this: it "says by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen are not made of things which do appear." But the phrase that really captures my heart about that beautiful, profound, drunken verse is the opening line: "By faith we understand." I think in our in our Western mind we want to think of it like this: by understanding, I'll have faith. Explain it enough to me so that I understand, and then faith will be my response to the understanding. But that's not the way he works. By faith, we understand. I say yes to what I don't understand, and that yes enters me into a process of experiences, encounters with God that may or may not lead me to understanding. Because when I come to the Lord, I I come with a lot of questions. And I always thought that he was there to answer my questions, when in fact, he seems to delight more in questioning my answers. So when I come to God, I have a question. He answers my question and then goes, oh, by the way, here's two new questions for you. So I walk away with an answer but more questions. And after years and years, I mean, if, if you would have met me like 15 years ago, I knew way more then than I know now. <laughs> I got more questions now than I did back then. I had it all figured out. I read Josh McDowell's books. I knew it all. Apologetics one (laughs) on one, baby. I could argue, I could argue you into the kingdom of God, but I didn't have the experience to back it up. The encounters and experiences with God have left me without words sometimes, and I walk away going, I have no idea what what just happened to me. I got lots of questions, but I've just had an experience that transcends my ability to explain it. And he didn't seem to care whether I fully understood or not. He just was looking for faith that was willing to say, like Mary said. Mary says to two two kinds of questions you can ask, I think, in the Bible. You have Zacharias is an example of one where he goes behind the the veil into the Holy of Holies. And uh, there's an angel behind John the Baptist's dad. There's an angel behind the veil and says, "Your prayer has been heard, your wife Elizabeth's going to conceive bear a child." And Zacharias pitches a fit about it. He goes, well, "How do I know you're telling me the truth?" The idea is that I'm an old man. I do not want a kid. We, we prayed that prayer like years ago. <laughs> what is going on with this timeline that you were on? I don't understand. We, didn't, we don't have the energy for a toddler. And the angel realizes this this guy is gonna talk himself out of the promise if I let him make sound. Okay, you don't get to talk for nine months, all right? Right. Same angel comes to Mary with an equally cryptic word. You're gonna bear the the, the Son of God, and she's like, I, I I've never even had a boyfriend. What? How's this gonna happen? And here's the angel's response The Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and the glory of the Lord will come upon you. And that's why this is going to be the Son of God. That explains nothing. <laughs> I'd be like, that did it. Okay, that was cool, super poetic, answered nothing for me. And here's her response Be it unto me according to your word. She had no idea what she was getting herself into. And I think that's kind of the way it is with us and God, is I hear there's no distance, no separation, and something leaps in my heart, in my spirit. I don't understand it. But I bet if I hear it again, I'll get the same response. No distance, no separation. Whew, wow, it's true. My spirit knows it's true. And sometimes your spirit will hear truth on a word that your mind doesn't yet comprehend, and your spirit will say yes to what your mind can't wrap itself around it's almost like you're, this is what's being spirit-led. I, I, my mind is like running to catch up, but my spirit is like all in. And to me, that's kind of what this life with Christ is like. That's how, that's how I have come to experience union with God. It's very cool. I'm just going to make people ask in here. Oh, yeah, <laughs> needs. Timothy, okay. hang on to that. Don't, okay. lose, don't lose yep. it.
1: Um, I'd be curious to hear more about your journey from like when that you first started to contemplate that maybe to like where it's become more of a reality for you and how maybe a bit about how that's changed totally changed your life. If that makes sense. Yeah.
0: Um it changed well. Since you guys are doing the supernatural Bible reading thing, it changed. It definitely changed how I saw the Bible. I started seeing okay. If I if I think if I believe there's no distance or separation between me and God, then I've got to look everywhere for Him in the Scripture to define me. His divinity is what defines my humanity in this life. For as He is, so are we in this world. So I started looking everywhere I could to find Him. So again, going back to the parables. I started realizing that if, if I couldn't find him in a parable, maybe the parable wasn't about me. I could learn some things from it, but maybe it wasn't about me. It changed the way I saw everything. The parable of the, uh, the wise and the foolish virgins. Jesus comes, says, uh, says there's these seven wise virgins and seven foolish virgins, and uh, the wise ones got their lamps, uh, you know, ready, and you got to have oil to get into the wedding, and the foolish ones, they're, you know, the wise ones are accountants and administrators. The foolish ones are like artists. It's like last minute folks, you know, like me, and so, and so suddenly, boom, wedding time, and, and the foolish ones show up to the wise ones and go, hey, uh, can you give us some oil? And the wise ones go, no, go get your own, which is super Christian. <laughs> it's so sad. You just feel the sacrifice coming off of that, right? And, uh, and, but then you begin to realize, wait a minute, why, why is it one of those two characters that I actually have, why, why am I those two characters in the play? I'm in the bridegroom. The bridegroom's in me. The wedding is about you. You're the bride of Christ. He's actually romancing you and bringing you all the oil you will ever need. On that side of the cross, you had to work to get your own oil. On the other side of the cross, the oil maker is in you. On one side of the cross, I can't borrow my neighbor's transformation. I get that. That's one level of truth. But there's a deeper truth that's revealed in the fact that on this side of the cross, I'm actually one with the one who's bringing me the oil. And I think, actually, it also answers the question why none of the parables of Jesus are ever repeated on that side of the, this side of the cross. Paul claims to fully preach the gospel in 13 13 letters and never repeats a single parable that Jesus told. But you know what he is enamored with? Being in Christ. It's the thing he mentions more than anything else. So he realizes what Jesus was instructing people into, a revelation of the kingdom within you is a revelation of being in Christ. And as he grows in his faith from Thessalonians on down, he more and more writes it until by the time you get to his last letters, he's so drunk. It feels like it's just a mystery. It's mystical literature. John's the same exact way. John is absolutely enamored with being in Christ the whole time John's writing. It's just, it's this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made, it was, was made. In him was life, and that life is the light of men, and the light shines out of the darkness, but the darkness doesn't even understand it. And by the time you get done with John, you're like, this guy's a drunk mystic. What has he been doing? He's been soaking his whole life, marinating in the glory of God. And that seems to be all he can talk about. It's just this, you're in me, and I'm in you, and we're one, and... New covenant reality changes everything. Changes the way we see the scriptures. It will change the way you see other people. That's another thing. You look at other people, and you'll see, like Paul said, Christ is all and in and all. You'll look at them and go, okay, I may not be able to see... Christ, without the help of the Holy Spirit. But I know that God knew you from before the foundation of the world. So I want to know what God knew before you even knew you could be known. Because that's the true you. That's what God told Jeremiah. He said, I knew you before I formed you. Now, if he believes that, knows that about everybody, then I want to know what he knew. What's your name? hmm Nancy. So here's, here's the thing. When God first thought of you, Nancy, He had more thoughts than you could think of yourself in a lifetime. And they were all precious. David said it like this, Psalm 139, the precious thoughts of God towards you outnumber all of the sand. I'm no expert in sand, but living in Florida, I did do an experiment one day. I went out and took a pinch of sand, I put it on my dining room table, with just like a pair of tweezers, I just started like counting out how many grains can I pick up in one pinch of sand? I stopped at 200 and I barely made a dent in the pile. Tiny little pile. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, if you could believe 10 grains of sand worth what I believe about you, it would change your whole life. I'm not even talking about the Sahara Desert. I'm talking about 10 grains. Now, if I can believe that for me, And I think I can believe that for you, then it changes the way I see me, and it changes the way I see you. And now I'm looking at everybody different. But not only that, I realize that in Christ we're one. All right? Now here's a big here's an application of this union. In Christ, you and I are one right now in the spirit. There's no male or female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, all are one in Christ. In Christ is the truth of your identity, and it transcends race, gender, nationality, and social status. So in Christ, we are actually one. I don't understand that because it looks like you're sitting there, and I'm standing here, and there's a bunch of distance between us. But if in Christ, in spirit, we are one spirit, united with one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, then this distance that I perceive in this physical realm is actually an illusion. Not real. Now, when I begin to realize that, then I can't be jealous of you or competitive with you. What I actually need is for the anointing of God to fully be able to be expressed in you. So I need to speak words of spirit and life that bring your true identity to the surface so you can be everything God has created you uniquely to be because the more you put him on display, the more I know who I am. So like tonight, Mary's up there and she's leading worship, right? Now if I think there's distance and separation here, then I go, wow, I wish I could learn how to play like that. I wish I could learn how to sing like that. Man, I wonder why she can do that, and I can't. God will express unique gifts and graces through unique people, but it doesn't mean that there's distance and separation between us. It's one spirit. Same spirit that's empowering her is the same spirit that empowers me to put him on display uniquely through the, through the facet of the diamond, I guess we could say, that he's made me to be and made Mary to be. So instead of looking up there on the keyboard and looking at Mary and going, wow, man, I wish I could do that. Instead, I look up at Mary and go, I did not know I was that awesome. that's amazing. I didn't even realize I was that good. Here's the amazing thing now. I I want to applaud the grace and the gift upon somebody else's life. No jealousy, no competition. I need you to be great. Otherwise, I don't know who I am. Your greatness is my inheritance. Your anointing becomes my reward. Why? Because as you put his glory on display, I begin to feast from that. Your greatness is not meant to produce jealousy in me. It's actually meant to produce glory upon all of us. Imagine, imagine with me for just a second, what what would happen in the body of Christ if the world, which which revels in division, looked inside the church and saw no jealousy and no competition and people who see the gold and greatness in one another, do you think they might go, I wonder what they would see in me? But I guarantee if we, if we cornered a thousand non-church-going people out there and say, hey, tell me what you think you're going to find in church, you know what they talk about? Ugh, judgment. Matter of fact, we would have people come to church and get saved, and and they would always come in looking like like Charlie the Charlie Brown, you know, you know. i we're like, oh man, you, know, you share the gospel with them and they're just ripe for the gospel. Yes, I want to say yes to Jesus. And they cry and you declare the grace of God over them, and they're forgiven. It's amazing. The first thing they do is go, what can I do? Can I work in the nursery? Can I work with kids? No, no, you no, don't want you working with kids. Um you know, I'll clean toilets, I'll do anything. we are like, wow, that's amazing. They want to serve, and they become like an instant example. What are they doing? They didn't come in because they were looking for the love of God. They came in because they were dealing with something that, here's the thing. When people are feeling guilt and shame, judgment feels good. Punishment actually feels good. It's like turning yourself in. You can't, turn, turning yourself into the police. You can't handle the guilt and shame anymore, so you go and turn yourself in. And so people will come into church like that to get saved. They've done something horrible. They cheated on their spouse. They stole something at work. They messed something up. Horrible. Oh, they come in, like, oh, it's horrible. I'm not a terrible person. I'm such a low life. Yeah, you are. But say this prayer, and, and all will be expunged for eternity. And they go, really? That's amazing. And see, the thing that's driving is a sense of, like, I need, I need punishment. But you give them forgiveness, and now they get super happy. Now they now now they're they're like they're going around and they're volunteering for everything. It lasts about three months, until pretty soon they feel like they've they've paid their debt, and then they are gone, and you never see them again. And the reason I think that happens and that cycle repeats over and over again is we've made ourselves the church. We've made uh, the church famous for judgment, where Jesus is famous for love. And so there's got to be an identity shift really in us because we haven't done a great job of putting the likeness of the image on display. If, if they knew, if the world knew that they would come in and find the truth of their identity and, and the discovery of really why they're alive, I think they'd be kicking down the doors to come and get right in your face going, what do you see? Jesus said to the disciples one day, he said, who do you say that I am? Fascinating. Um, One of the few questions that Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? What he was doing was he was mirroring what, what we all do. We're all looking around at everybody around us and we're asking the question, who do you say that I am? Because we define ourselves by how other people see us. And until we come to him and say, who do you say that I am? We'll never know. That's why getting in this revival culture in the school like you guys are in is such a big deal to me. Because in this school, you're gonna learn how to speak and 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 release that over people. Because without even knowing it, everybody around you, everywhere you go, is asking the question Who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Anyway, you had a question. Yeah.
1: Uh, Yeah, my name is Timothy, and uh, my question is, what's it like experiencing the passion and tenacity that Jesus has just throughout life?
0: I think it looks like fun. I think Jesus was a blast to be around. I've never seen a bunch of kids want to run and sit on the lap of a grouch. But every time Jesus sits down, it seems like his lap is full of kids. It tells us a lot about the nature and the character of what he's like. Tracy and I have have come to this beautiful discovery, and that is that having fun together is part of worship. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I got friends that just revel in just, you know, long, you know, prayer times of, and that's great. I love it. Been there. I've done the 24-7 prayers, the 48-hour prayers, the 72-hour prayers, the whole bit. I'm all, yeah oh my goodness! that was a long one, yeah <sighs> yeah uh I think one of the greatest evangelistic tools the church hasn't really capitalized on yet is Christians having fun. I think we could really touch the world if 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 we made it oh and Tracy and I do we have such a great time i mean we we we're tourists everywhere we go. We want to go see stuff. We want to do stuff. We want to eat stuff. We wanna... I mean, I think Jesus loves food. I think he likes it. Why do I think that? Because when he raises from the dead, he eats. He Shows up at a breakfast and is like, Peter, hook me up with a plate. Goes to a fish fry. He's like, hey, make me one. He doesn't have to eat. He just beat death. What is he doing? He just he enjoys it. I think he loves life. I think he enjoyed doing it. Have you considered the lilies? I mean, this is a sermon that God's preaching. I want to hear like kingdom revelation. It's going to make me want to take notes, you know, make my iPad run out of memory. Come on, give me, have you, con- Bill, have you considered the lilies? What? I think he's fun. And I think believers having fun is, is absolutely necessary. I think it's evangelism. I want to have so much fun that people look and go, I don't know what he's on, but I'll have a double of that. So we do. We we have a blast. We, we uh, I, I tell people the kingdom of God is like uh, carry me through with this illustration. So if you're one of those anti-Disney folks, uh, you know, I live next to Disney World, so it's part of my life, whether I like it or not. People you're like, oh, boycott Disney, and I'm like, thank you. You know how long the lines are? Just... <laughs> Anything to keep the lines down, seriously. <clears throat> so, to me, the kingdom is a lot like Disney, right? And and it's, people will get a ticket and they'll get into the, the park and then they'll find a bench like right inside the front gate and hang out or maybe stroll around just a little bit. But they'll come back home and, and I'll be like, hey, did you go? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was awesome. What'd you do? Uh and then I go down a list of all the things that there are to do. And they're like, yeah, we didn't, we didn't do that. Oh, we missed that. You know, the fireworks start like in 30 minutes. Why are you here? Oh, we didn't know that was happening. What exactly did you do? We bought a T-shirt. And I think a lot of people treat the kingdom like that. It's kind of like I got a ticket. I got in the gate. I got something that proves that I've been there. What did you do? I I want to ride all the rides. I want to get on. I want to eat everything. I want to ride all the rides. I want to see every parade. I want to be front and center for that fireworks show. I want to be the, I want to be the whole That's to me in the kingdom. I'm going to be And I was a little kid. I I learned this lesson very early on. My parents took me to a an amusement park up in uh, Seattle, Washington, called him Village. I'd never been to anything like this before. We'd only ever been to, like, like fairs and stuff where you had to pay for every ticket or you have to, it means everything costs, right? And uh, right inside the gates of this amusement park, and I knew this place was expensive, right inside the gates of the amusement park, there was a swing set, like a picnic area and a swing set. My dad apparently had gotten some tickets or whatever, and now we're inside the gate. And I ran over to the swings because I knew swings were free. I was a missionary's kid. So I run over to the swings and I start swinging and sliding and do what you do on the playground. Dad's like, "Come on, Billy! Come on! I don't want to leave the swings. Come on, Billy! Well, what are you? What are you doing?" And finally, he comes over to me and goes, "Aren't you going to go ride anything?" And this is what I say to my dad. And my dad would tell the story. I'd say, "Dad, this stuff costs money." And my dad had to explain to me the all-inclusive ticket concept I had never heard of before. And he says, this is, I, "I bought one ticket, and that one ticket gives you access to everything. As a matter of fact, that roller coaster over there, all that stuff, you can ride that as much as you want." And when that sunk in, my dad said he was. He said, "I wish I'd have never said anything. It would have been so much more relaxing just let him swing." Because <laughs> it was like the rest of the day it was like, "Billy, no!" <laughs> the kingdom is an all-inclusive ticket. Do it all. I met a guy this morning. Oh, wonderful brother this morning. ah, oh, I love him, love him. I can't remember his name. I'll remember his name, I'm sure, when I when I finish telling this story. But he was telling me this morning, he said, I, I used to come into this church and I criticized the worship. I criticized everything about this. My wife would drag me here kicking and screaming. And I'd start criticize it all. And he goes, uh, he goes, something happened to me this morning. He says, while you're preaching, you're talking all about this. And God just dealt with me. And he goes, he goes, you know, there's a lot of fun to be had in here if you'll just stop judging everything. <laughs> and he goes, I, I tell you what, I just determined that's it. I'm not going to judge this. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna enjoy it. And he goes, man, my heart is lighter. I can't. His wife is crying. She's like, he can't stop smiling. Look at him. It's, it's like, I mean, look like Buddy the Elf from, he's like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> like it's great. <laughs> I'm looking at him going. Wow, this is uh, fascinating. It's an all-inclusive thing. Ride the rides, tongues, prophecy, all of it, all the gifts of the Spirit—they all belong to you. I don't like that tongues thing. My dad used to say it's like shoes. When you buy the shoes, the tongues come with it. It's a package deal. When you got Jesus, you got an all-all-inclusive ticket. You got a backstage pass to the throne room. You got a divine blood transfusion. Whoa. Whew. <laughs> All right, one more question, and then I think we'll call it a night. Uh, going once, twice. <laughs> this is fun. Q&A is my favorite. It's so unpredictable.
1: Hey, Bill, my name's Hi. Tracy. Um, I was at the Immersion Weekend, and you gave a definition of intimacy, and I was wondering if you could just talk about that again.
0: Oh, wow. You remember what I said? (laughs) No. That's why I'm asking. (laughs) (laughs) I think Tracy talked about that. That's like her favorite topic. Into me, see. Yes, that was it. Into me, see. Yeah. Into me, see. You and I are meant to be living invitations. Let me just finish with this. This is something I felt like I was supposed to say this morning and I didn't get a chance to. You and I are living invitations for people to have a relationship of intimacy with God. But they're not all going to say yes. And I hate that but I realized their ability to say no is a freedom that God has given them. And and God honors that freedom. And so do I. As painful as it is, think of it like this. The word of God creates worlds. His word creates and holds together everything in the cosmos. It's the most powerful force in the universe, the word of God but he will not use his word to break your will. I mean, he could say something that would literally cause you and I to be like, ah, I can't help it. It's not what he does. He takes the most powerful force in the universe and simply offers his word by which everything holds together as an invitation for you and I to surrender and say yes. And, uh, and somebody asked me this morning, how do we get people, how, how do we make people change? <laughs> You're just simply responsible to preach the gospel. You can't guarantee the outcome. You're just to be a living invitation. And we only have one measure of success in this life with Christ, and that is just surrendered obedience to the voice of the Lord. That's it. And that surrendered obedience may look like different to every person in the room. To one person, he may say, I'm calling you to a third world country where you're going to preach before, you know, 10 million people. You're going to turn the hearts of the leaders of that country, and God's going to give you that country, and they're actually going to turn around. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. And and you have no idea how that's going to happen, but you walk from one surrendered yes to the next, and you're just realizing God's opening door after door after door, and pretty soon you're standing in front of millions of people entire country has changed. You can't take any credit for it. It wasn't your strategy or your marketing ideas or anything. You just said yes to yes to yes to yes to yes to suddenly you just fulfilling the destiny that God had on your life. But to somebody else, God might say, and I don't want you to go anywhere. See that corner of your room that you're not using right there? I want you to set up just a place of prayer, That particular family that I've been putting on your heart lately, I want you to put their pictures up there, and every day I want you to pray over them, record what you hear me say to you, and then just, you know, share with them what you're hearing me say. Or maybe just even in silence, you just never, they never even know. You're just praying every single day for maybe one family, one missionary, whatever. I don't know. These are just two examples of people that I've heard that said, this is what I feel like the Lord is saying for me. And so one person, nobody knows who they are all the days of their life. They just dedicate themselves to pray right? Another person, all the days of their life, they're going and going and going. They got a supernatural grace on their life, makes them look superhuman. And they go out and they take the world for God. You know what? In the end, I think they all get the same exact reward because the only measure of success we have is surrendering to say yes to the voice of the Lord. The problem I think we get is that when we think that success looks like only one kind of thing, and that's a successful ministry that everybody knows about, then that's what we strive for, and anything that God tells us that doesn't line up with our expectation, we throw away as not being from God, rather than just being a blank slate and saying, Lord, I'm just living in surrender to you. And so I, th- I, have this, I have this kind of this burning, overwhelming conviction that those of you in the, in the room here, you have an ambition to have a great ministry. Let it go. People ask me this one question I get probably more than any other. How can I do what you do? I go, I, I don't even know. Do you know how I'm doing this? Why I'm even like, how I even got into this? I accidentally got invited to a conference as a speaker with five-minute notice. True story. Tell it real quick. Georgian Banoff was coming to, to Austin, Texas, and uh, he asked me to help him organize an event with Heidi Baker and Lance Wallnau and a bunch of folks. And uh, and so uh, I was supposed to be the driver for his assistant, Rich Brink, at the time. And so uh, uh, this is back in 2008. Georgian goes... Uh, um, I, uh, uh, he, he goes, I just need you just to drive rich around. I said, that's fine. No big deal. I was just, I was one of nine pastors on staff at a large church in Austin. I, nobody knew who I was. We'd, we, we haven't done a whole lot, but I was just super content and super happy with the way life was going. It was just, you know, so, um, I didn't even get to preach that much back then. And then, uh, Lance Walnow's plane, he didn't catch his plane or something. Anyway, he couldn't make the afternoon session on Friday. And Georgian at the last minute goes, Rich, get Bill to do the afternoon session. And Rich goes, OK, If well, you talked to Bill? He says, Yes, I'm, I talked to him about it. And actually, he went, Hey, yeah, get Bill to do the afternoon session. Anyway, so, <laughs> so, so have you talked to Bill about it? Yeah, I talked to Bill about it. So, um, well, no, nobody had talked to me about it. Nobody talked to me about it. So five minutes before the session, I don't even attend the afternoon session. I was bailing on it because it's an afternoon session. I mean, really, it's like sixteen hundred people at this thing. So they're not gonna—they're not gonna notice that I'm missing, you know. So, so uh, I'm, I'm with a friend. We're having barbecue down the road. Rich calls me and says, "Where are you?" I said, "Ah, uh, you need something?" Yeah, you. I'm like. Oh, man, what's going on? It's like weird, kind of demanding. So I go back, and I'm kind of stepping over bodies and stuff, and worship is going on. I walk up to Rich, and I say, what do you need? And he goes, oh, good, you're here. As soon as worship's over, I'll introduce you, and then you've got it for like, oh, an hour and 40 minutes or so. <laughs> There's 1,600 people in this room. I, I don't even know what, what I got. What are you talking about? Like, got what? So I looked at the flyer to see what the afternoon session was about. And it was about prophetic ministry. Okay, well this will be a train wreck. So, so I got up and I just said, we're just gonna get some people up to prophesy. So how many of you have never done this before? And people are like, so person after person, pull like 35 people up on the stage. And I gave him, like, a real quick primer on hearing the voice of God. I'm mean, like, we're going to, you know, listen, ask God to give us a name or a picture or a word or something like that. And then you just, you know, point somebody out in the audience, and then we're just going to see if it hits. I mean, it was the worst instructions ever. It was so bad. And... uh and there was a former NFL football player that got his knee healed, and he started praying for people. They started getting their knees healed. There's an elderly lady who was missing a bunch of teeth, and they all got filled in with gold teeth. People were snapping pictures of the inside of her mouth. Um, one guy from the stage just yells, fire, and a whole bunch of people flew back over chairs. And I looked at him and go, wow, you, you must be an evangelist. He goes, I've never even held a microphone before. And it was nuts. It was crazy. Well, in the middle of it, Georgian comes in the back and he sees mayhem. People are jaw- people with their knees healed are running around the sanctuary. There are chairs tipped over. People are snapping pictures of an old lady over here. I mean, it's like it was it was crazy. And Georgian walks up to me and goes, This is amazing. This is what I've always wanted in our conferences. Where's Bill Hart? That was the pastor of the host, the host pastor of the church. And I go, what? And he goes, yeah, I told, I told Rich to get Bill to do the afternoon session. Where'd he go? And suddenly, I had this strange realization. I'm the wrong Bill. I said, George, Rich asked me. He gave me five minute notice. I didn't even know what was going on. And Jordan's like, what'd you do? I said, I don't know. He goes, can you do it again? I don't know. And he says, okay, well, tomorrow afternoon, we're going to do the same thing. So I ended up traveling with Georgian for a couple of years. That's how it started. It was a complete accident. So people come up and go, how can I do what you do? I don't know. I just said yes. I just said yes. When a door opens in front of you, say yes. Just say Yes. May not know what in the world's about to happen. Just say yes. All right, stand up. Who? <laughs> Who? Wow. Oh Jesus! We just give a surrendered yes to everything you ask us to do. And we don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. Our certainty is gone. We're just living, loving the moment that we're standing in because right now there's nothing but joy and peace right here. I'm telling you, for some of you, if you think a minute into the future, you're going to panic. If you think a minute into the past, you're going to feel regret. Stop. Just come to right where you are right now because right in this moment, there is righteousness, peace, and joy. There's more than enough in the moment you're standing in. It's an all-inclusive ticket. Into this beautiful thing of the kingdom of God. Whew. Wow, wow, wow. Oh, yeah, I'm feeling this. <laughs> Whew, it's eight o'clock. What in the world? How did that happen? My wife just texts me and goes, Did you get raptured? <laughs> I'm not gonna answer and let her wonder. <laughs> Whew. Please don't tell her I said that. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Megan. One day I'm in Ireland. I'm going to read this over you. I'm going to finish this way. I'm in Ireland, and a spiritual pop of, of mine is a guy named Jack Taylor. Jack wrote his first book on the kingdom of God over five decades ago. And uh pastor in Ireland says, how would you define the kingdom? He said, I've been looking to try to define the kingdom. So I texted Jack. And Jack starts, you can see, you know, the other person's typing on the other end. And he sends me this. And it's never written it at any, anywhere else, but I, I thought this was one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And so Let me just read this over you tonight. And uh, we'll finish with this. The kingdom of God in its largest scope is the rule of God over everything and everybody everywhere for all time and eternity. In its earthly sense, now the kingdom of God is the silent and steady rule of God over everything, everywhere, here on earth, though not recognized by most. In the personal sense is the rule of God over individual lives through the indwelling Christ. The kingdom is righteousness, "'Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit "'who is working in us to conform us "'to Christ who dwells within. "'You and I are but vessels "'in which Christ is living through His Spirit, "'and we are being transformed day by day "'into His likeness. "'The kingdom has come, is coming, and will come. "'It is transcendent and transforming.'" And its power is God working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. The kingdom cannot fail, will not fail, and is not failing now. God being God will have his way and for some strange reason has trusted us to be living displays of his eternal rule. He has commanded us to pray your will be done and God would not lead us to pray something he did not intend to answer and as we speak that kingdom, you hear that? As we speak that kingdom is coming bit by bit, person by person, nation by nation until the announcement that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. 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 Can we just lift up an offering of praise to the Lord tonight? Thank you, Lord. Thank you.